let's go ahead and go into Acts chapter 2. The first uh, question I just want to pose to you this morning is, what is it that makes a spirit-filled community? What is it that makes a spirit-filled community? There's lots of talk in Christian circles about what a church looks like when it's full of the spirit. Have you guys ever heard somebody say, yeah, you should try this church out because it's full of the spirit? Now, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say that? And my bigger question is, is when we say that, are we doing it based off of something that is biblical and based in the word, or is it something based off of our emotions and feelings and what we feel in the moment when we're uh, with a given group of people or a church? Last week, we began the discussion of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is transitioning from the idea of right doctrine to right conduct. He moves from chapters 1 through 3, right doctrine, to right conduct in chapters 4 through 6. And we use those words orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Everybody say it with me. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I guarantee you haven't used those two words all week long until today, but it's good to get those in our head. Paul knows that for the church to be able to walk in the right conduct that he's about to take them into, and he's about to lay out in the last half of the letter, he knows that the church must have power outside itself. How easy is it for us to walk in Jesus if it's only on our power? Not at all. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With his spirit, all things are possible. And he knows that we must be full of the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself. Without him, it is impossible to love as Christ calls us to love, to give generously, to witness to the power of God, to do all that we are commissioned to do. Without the spirit, all that is asked of us is impossible. And worse, it might even be destructive. Because to lay that burden on ourselves without the power of the Holy Spirit leads us to a place where we feel like failures. But with the Holy Spirit, something miraculous happens. Suddenly, when the Holy Spirit is infused into the church body, miraculous things like being able to give abundantly beyond anything we're capable happens. In our time, our talents, our treasure. Laying down our egos, which is, I don't know about you, but pretty hard for me, That's something that is miraculous in the church. And all of this brings us to a common motivation, a common mission as the church that we might show to the world who he is as the incarnate group of people known as his body. And that all might be invited into the kingdom of Christ as we have been. And so I think it's right for us on this Agape Sunday, this Sunday before we continue on in Ephesians 4, to take a look at Scripture and see what it is that identifies a Spirit-filled community. So we have a, a goal that we can look at, and we can pray for the Spirit to fill us to move towards. Now, for a better reading on these topics, much more in-depth, I want to recommend a book to you. Uh, Artazertia, Dr. Artazertia wrote a book called Spirit-Filled Mission. The last two chapters goes into heavy detail in what I'm going to give you a summary version of today. So it's called Spirit-Filled Mission. It's a wonderful book. To be sure, the opinions on this topic of what a Spirit-Filled Church is, they're very wide-ranging, are they not? People have lots of different opinions across Christendom. And the spectrum of belief on the topic of the Holy Spirit and His effect on Christians and the church in general will vary widely depending on who you're talking to. For many within circles known as Pentecostal or Charismatic, there's a desire to use the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the day of the Jewish festival of Pentecost, to describe what a spirit-filled church looks like. Now, it was on this day after Christ had told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, that the apostles were gathered together in a house awaiting the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look and see what happened there in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we've already got somebody speaking in tongues, so we're good to go. 
There we go. Out of the mouths of babes, amen? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the word tongues there is the word glossa, and you can, you can totally substitute the word languages there for tongues. It, uh, the reason it continues with tongues is because Bible translators know that they will sell more Bibles if it says tongues. I'm dead serious, right? There is a large, the largest group of non-denominational evangelical Christians in the world is Pentecostals and non-denominationals. And so they, uh, you can go ask Bill Mounts, who's one of the foremost um, uh, Greek scholars uh, alive today, and he will tell you that that could, can and probably should be translated other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. Okay? And we see that play out. What this allowed the apostles to do is to initiate their ministry in Jerusalem and to proclaim the gospel to the Jews in a new and powerful way. You see, this day was very special because Pentecost was one of the festivals where male, uh, male Jews especially, but even entire families, were called to Jerusalem. They were commanded by God to come to Jerusalem. And so there were Jews from all over the known world there to hear, as they spoke in other languages, the very beginnings of the gospel. And so they began the seeding of the entire world with the good news that God had come incarnate in Jesus, that he paid the price for our sins as our substitute on the cross, that he'd atoned for our rebellion against God, and that he'd risen three days later, proving his victory over the powers of the kingdom of darkness. And they were able to speak this truth that Jesus was the Messiah that the entire Old Testament was looking for. Now the question becomes, does this event right here in verses 1 through 4 give us the characteristics of a spirit-filled community? Is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? What many Christians would say is it's prescriptive and we should all have similar uh, experiences and that this is what spirit-filled Christians look like. The problem is, is that this actually starts and continues on, if you read it in context, to finish off in the event here in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37, Peter goes into the temple and he speaks profoundly and preaches the gospel to the Jews so strongly and perfectly that they turn and say to him, look at verse 37 of chapter 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were, they were penetrated to the heart and convicted. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, what shall we do to be saved? We've obviously got this whole thing upside down. What do we do? And look what Peter says to him. He says to him, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? What will this gain? The forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the... What's that again? Holy Spirit. Okay, so here we have... Peter's saying, I'm about to tell you and show you what it looks like to receive the Holy Spirit. See, Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's what happened to the apostles at the beginning of the church. It will never happen in that way ever again. What is about to happen here in verses 37 and on, this is a showing to us of what a spirit-filled church looks like. This is, if you will, the first church assembly, and they are about to receive the Holy Spirit. And so it says there in verse 39, he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. That includes us, guys. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here you have the beginning of the church. Now, verse 42 flows directly off of this statement, an event in which the first church is formed and the first believers are baptized into the believing, spirit-filled community of God's people. And it seems to me that this is the proper place to look for the identifying characteristics of what a spirit-filled community looks like. So let's take a look and see what the author Luke uses to identify a spirit-filled community. Acts 2.42 should be underlined, highlighted, circled, starred, everything in your Bible. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now this morning in our short time together in the ministry of the word, I'd like to break this down so that we might truly understand what our calling is if we, are identif- if we Mission Fellowship, are to identify as a spirit-filled community of Jesus. We will see the primary summary statement here in verse 42, but then verses 40 through 47 will serve as an explicit statement of how that all plays out. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to see what all of it has as its purpose at the very end. So first, what we see is the defining characteristics of a spirit-filled church. And the first thing you can write down is this, devotion to learning God's word. Devotion to learning God's word. Parents, if you're unable to concentrate because you got kiddos, I'm going to give you four main points here, and you just need to remember those as you leave the door today. So you can pay attention to the kiddos and just catch these four major points. Now, before we get too far into this first point here. I want us to notice a very particular word, devoted. And they devoted themselves. Now, most of us as Christians, what I find is that very few of us know what devotion means anymore. Uh, We think of that five-minute thing in the morning that we attempt to do right after we hit the snooze button in order to give our morning devotions to Jesus that end up making us fall asleep even more, right? That is actually the opposite of devotion, Uh, The Greek-English lexicon says that devotion here means to continue to do something with, get ready for it, intense effort, with the possible implication of doing it despite difficulty, to persist in it. You see, the early church did not have a zeal that waxed and waned depending on what else they had in their schedule or whether or not they felt like being devoted on a given day. This first spirit-filled community maintained a devotion to the items we are about to look at. I love how one writer put it. He said, theirs was a holy stubbornness, a holy stubbornness. They were not fruitful trees that allowed the innocuous cares of this world to choke out their devotion to Christ. Christ and his mission was their all. Did they still have jobs? Yes, many of them did. Did they still have homes to take care of? Yes, they absolutely did. Did they have children? Did they have uh, their version of whatever little league was back then? I guarantee they did. But they were realizing that Christ and his mission was their all. Everything else fell below that. And so the first thing they devoted themselves to was learning the apostles' doctrine or teaching. This was core for the fledgling church. Remember when Jesus commissioned his apostles what he said to them? He said, I've gotten all authority. It's all been given to me. And so I'm the king now. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We remember that very well. But here's the next part that we forget teaching them to observe. And I've taught you before that that word observe, it means very much obey. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Guys, the job of a pastor is to teach you how to obey Jesus. If a pastor thinks his job is to come up and solely to encourage or motivate you, he's missed his job description. I want to encourage you and I want to motivate you. I never want to demotivate you. I don't want to be like one of those demotivation posters, right? You guys seen those, right? Those are my favorite, the demotivation posters. I don't want to be a demotivator. But if I'm doing my job, I'm helping you to observe, to obey all that Christ has commanded us. Paul charged the pastor Timothy with finding faithful man, uh, men to pass on the apostles' teaching. Paul called the churches he established to follow his manner of life based on the teaching he had provided. The early Christians realized that much of what Jesus taught was a clarification and correction to pharisaical thoughts surrounding the Old Testament. And so Jesus came clearly to correct much of this wrong thinking about God and the apathetic worship of him. And so this was to be the core of what the recreated Christian church looked like, the recreated people of God. Remember what Paul says at the beginning of almost every switch from orthodoxy uh, to orthopraxy. Remember this from Romans 12? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That idea of conformed is like when you take silly, uh, not silly putty, uh, Play-Doh, there we go, and you put it into one of those squeeze things that makes the spaghetti. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And the squeeze and the pressure makes you kind of conform and turn into spaghetti. Well, the world does the same things. You take Netflix and you take Instagram and you take, you name the social media platform and you take Twitter and you take Tinder and you take everything and it squeezes us into, oh, I got to be just like the rest of the world. The Bible says, throw that out. Do something totally different. I love it when I hear Christians talk about, yeah, we decided to get rid of our TV because we don't want to be conformed, right? That's not a command of Scripture. They didn't even have TVs back then. But I love that because somebody's bucking the trend. Who does that? Well, somebody who doesn't want to watch TV, right? Or maybe a person who says, you know what? I'm just going to get off social media. (gasps) It's like that is the, I mean, that is like the apocryphal thing to do right now, right? If you are uh, not on social media, in today's world, you're anathema. You might as well be cursed, right? I can't even tell you how much psychological strength and well-being I have gained by getting off of social media. And then I hear people saying, hey, you want to hear what's on social media? No, I don't. I don't want to hear it. Why? Because it'll conform me into this world. I don't want to be conformed. And so how do we not get conformed? Well, we focus upon this. And guys, will five minutes of this in the morning fight against the conforming that happens 24-7 the rest of the week? No. Well, Hans, are you saying I need to spend like an hour in the Word a day? If you got time for that, yes, amen. Maybe you should make time for that. Maybe you should get up earlier and make time for that. We have to realize that this is what changes us and conforms us to God's image. Over my time in ministry, I found that there are really three boiled-down reasons why people do not zealously pursue the reading of the Word of God. The first one is a very honest one. People have said to me, Hans, it's hard to understand well, Paul, or Peter even said the same thing. He said, talking about Paul's writings, he said, sometimes Paul's writings are really hard to understand. So what do you need? Well, what happens when you go up a mountain? What do you need in order to get up the mountain? If you've never climbed the mountain before and it's totally new to you, what do you need? You need a Sherpa, right? Well, that's why there's pastors. If you're a person who struggles with this book and you open it up and you're so confused, you can just listen to what we're teaching, Go back and reread what we've gone through during the week. Go back and re-listen to the sermon and look at the sermon notes. Just focus on what we're doing. If you want to step outside of that, I would highly recommend to you uh, join the Bible Project online. Go to Google and join the Bible Project. 
Tim Mackey is a wonderful professor up at my seminary, and uh, Gary Brashear also works with it, who's also a mentor of mine. And they've done a wonderful job teaching very basic things in beautiful graphical artistry. And so go there and study it, but don't let that stop you. A second reason is I've heard people say, I just don't see the value in it. I read it and nothing happens. Well, what does that tell you about the expectation that's there? If I read it and nothing happens, you were expecting what? Something to happen. And it's, it's interesting to me. I wonder what that something is. No one can ever really tell me. In a, day, in a world of daily motivational quotes and yearning for mystical experiences, sometimes I think people expect to open this and there to be some magical lightning bolt that hits them. Or maybe God jumps out of the pages to tell them that they are worthy enough. Guys, that's not what this Bible is for. The reality of God's word is that it'll change us into the image of God. And if we don't see that as valuable, then we're not going to study the word. The more we read this, the more we will be conformed into the image of God. Well, the third one that uh, many people don't actually state, but I know is true, is I just don't want to read it. The simple fact of life is that we rearrange our schedules towards those things that we value. If we do not make something a priority, we have to then make changes in our value system so that we can readjust. I'd submit to you, dear flock who I love very much, that if these last two things are, are the case in your life, that either you don't want to read it or you don't see the value in it, I would ask you to genuinely search your heart this morning and ask yourself if you've fully received the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't have a thirst for this book to conform you into Jesus' image, ask yourself, have you actually received the good news of Jesus? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful pastor and preacher from the mid-20th century, said this, Have you received this apostolic doctrine? I can test you simply if you have. If you have believed this and received it, you have new spiritual life, and that will show itself in this way. You will be hungering and thirsting for more. It will become the greatest interest of your life. Often people will say to me, well, Hans, that's just, you're just a nerd, a Bible nerd, a history nerd. You, you just like to read that stuff. That's why you go to seminary. Don't get me wrong. Every Christian does not need to go to seminary. But if you don't have a thirst to learn more about this word and from this word, you have to ask yourself, have I received the gospel? In many Pentecostal and charismatic circles, one will find a kind of anti-intellectualism. That a true Christian is one that need not learn, only rely on the Holy Spirit to teach. Now I have found this is due in part to a wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit. John Stott says this, he says, We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Nor did these early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit, he was the only teacher they needed and they could dispense with human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered in it. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. Can I get an amen? amen. A Spirit-filled church will be a church hungry for in-depth, expositional teaching of the meaning of the Word of God. Mission, I look out at you and I see a church that even on Agape Meal Sunday, with kids in hand, is desiring to know the Word of God. And I praise God for that. Never, ever let that go. 
hold me and our leadership accountable to that truth. Because if we're teaching you our own opinions, topical ideas, we are not teaching you the word of God. Hold us to that. Keep us accountable. Well, secondly, we see not only their devotion to learning the word of God, we see their devotion to loving fellowship. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, this word fellowship is the word koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. At its base is the idea of sharing. Everybody say sharing. Thank you, Israel. That's exactly the intonation I was looking for. We teach it to our kids all the time. We need to learn to share, right? But somehow, somewhere along the ways, I think in our early 20s, that just goes poof, right? And then it's all about what? How do I get mine, right? I don't know if my neighbor knows it or not, but his property line is one inch over my property, right? Well, I got to buy that first on Amazon because if somebody else buys it, then I won't get it, right? I got to post this news first on the Twitter feed. Otherwise, somebody else has scooped me. It's all about us. Somewhere along the lines, it goes away. Well, what is it that we share in, church? What we share in is first the fellowship of the Trinity. This is from 1 John 1, 3. John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, with us. And indeed, our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, I read this to you last week, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The one and only good creator God has welcomed us into the communal nature of the Trinity that has existed since time began and he's done so out of one reason, his love for us, his pure grace for us. We were his enemies and he welcomed us in. And so everything is based off of sharing in this fellowship. This is what drives me batty about Christians who think that their walk is about them and Jesus. If Christians are meant to be sharers, why do we go around only talking about Jesus, my friend? Jesus is also your friend too, isn't he? Jesus is my Savior, but he's also your Savior too, isn't he? Jesus is my God and my King, but isn't he yours as well? And this is why, guys, if you look for it in the New Testament, you will find the mass majority of statements that Paul makes about Christ. He uses the plural first-person pronoun, we, our. That's huge for us as Americans. We have to remember this. Because secondly, not only do we share in the Trinity, the fellowship of the Trinity, but we share in a common life together. And this means what we give and what we receive, not just what we get. Both must be present, giving and receiving in a relationship for there to be true koinonia. It carries with it the sense of generosity. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 44 here. That last word there when it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. In common is the word koina. It's where we get koinonia from. Paul even uses a similar word when he's talking about the generosity of the saints in giving of their money to care for those who were in famine in Jerusalem. This is 2 Corinthians 8. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know what that word is in Greek? It's koinonian. There's fellowship, taking part not only in having coffee or eating a meal together, but in taking care of one another's needs. He uses the same thing in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, but their approval of this service 
Uh, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. Guess what that word is in Greek? Koinonian. This idea of sharing is at the core of fellowship. At the heart of who we are as Christians is the idea of generosity. I would submit to you that there is no such thing as a selfish Christian. Well, Hans, I, I'm kind of convicted right now. I feel a little bit selfish, but I believe I'm a Christian. Question yourselves. We serve a God who gave up everything in order to gain us. And I don't know about you, but when I look in the, morning, in the, in the mirror in the morning, I kind of think to, to myself, Jesus, what were you thinking? You gave up everything for me, for us? It's the heart of generosity and selflessness. It's generosity with our time, our talents and gifts, with our treasure, for the running of the church, for the giving to the needy and the vulnerable and the spread of the gospel. To miss this is to miss the core of what Luke is indicating about the spirit-filled church. In Dr. Azurdia's book, uh, at the beginning of one of the chapters, he uses two wonderful quotes. The first one is this. This summary of the activity of the church focuses our attention away from the preoccupation with individual actors toward the true concern of the story, which is the community. And a second quote, he says, The higher we value our personal privacy and freedom from commitments, the shallower our grasp of fellowship will be, reduced to moments of idle chit-chat over steaming coffee before or after a worship service. And just to be clear, this was not just a renunciation of private property, creating some weird form of cultic communism. But it was instead a renunciation of personal possessiveness, in which the value of a brother or sister in the body was equitable to your own wants and desires. And guys, we have to fight this. The other day, Cameron was doing some yard work. Where are you, Cameron? Cameron was doing some yard work. Was it for the rouse that you were using the pressure washer? Yeah. Yeah. So Cameron has used my pressure washer more than I ever have. And I needed it for some yard work, which I still haven't done because I'm too busy. And so he, he and I were texting back and forth, and he brought it over to my house and gave it back to me. And, and I had to fight inside of me this little bit of possessiveness of like, well, geez, you've used it more than I ever have, right? Well, isn't that a great thing? It's a stupid pressure washer. That's how selfish your pastor is. But we have to fight it constantly because give glory to God. Why do I even have the money to buy a pressure washer? Because of the graciousness of you in giving tithes and offerings. And why do you have the money to give tithes and offerings to support the running of the church and the giving of roofs to Africa? Because of God's glorious grace to you. It's all based on grace. It's all based on charity and love. And if we stop that cycle and we choke it out by our own selfishness, what have we done to the gospel of Jesus? We've killed it. We are to be a group of people that at its heart is full of generosity. The church was to be the fulfillment of the generous people God had called the Israelites to be. They were to use everything in their lives to speak to the generosity of Yahweh. So a spirit-filled church is a generous church that cares for one another. And not only is it devoted to learning God's word and loving fellowship, but third, It had devotion to joyful feasting together. This is actually a sign of spirit-filled worship. Now, how do I know this is true? Well, guys, we've done agape meals long enough now that it's kind of old hack, right? 
Like, oh, yeah, agape meal. I don't know. Hans doesn't teach as much in depth. It's not really worth my time going. I don't really want to have to get up in the morning and prepare food early to get it there. The whole reason we do agape meals is because the Spirit dwells within us. It is one sign to anyone who comes. If you're a visitor today, you should know a lot of these people were up at 6 a.m. trying to make food to give to you because they love you and they want to be charitable to you. This is an amazing spirit-filled thing that we cast off so quickly because we want those signs and wonders. Well, guys, this is a sign and wonder. I can tell you, having done agape meals for this long, this is a sign and a wonder of the Holy Spirit being in the midst of a people. And this is directly out of the call of generosity to break bread together. A lot of people, when they read in Acts 2.42, the breaking of bread, they think it refers to the communion meal. But based on Jewish custom, every meal was begun with taking the bread and breaking it and saying the traditional offering, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, speaking directly to Yahweh, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. We see this in Jesus feeding the thousands in the Passover meal and the meal after Jesus meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And if you look at verses 46 and 47, look at 46 and 47 there in Acts chapter 2. It says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Guys, this is core to what we're trying to build here at Mission Fellowship. Not only does our name speak to this fact, mission, fellowship, but it's also the way we've structured our weekly and monthly rhythms. Church, do you treasure Agape Sundays as a day to be generous to your church body? As a day to get to know people that you may not know all that well? As a day to show love to one another in a very tangible way? Do you treasure Agape Sundays? Do you recognize that community groups are a backbone to this mission? We participate in a simple potluck that speaks volumes towards our generosity toward one another and provide an environment that is not overwhelming into which we can and should be inviting those curious about what it is to be a Christian. Do you relish the chance to participate because it knocks down our propensity to selfishness? It makes us redefine our schedules not around our priorities, but around our church body, turning us all the more into the image of Christ. Do you relish community group. And guys, these groups are not meant to be perfect and without mess. They are instead meant to be messy. Community groups are meant to be messy with chances for children to rebel in the midst of everyone so you are embarrassed and you as parents get to come together and pray for your children and raise them up together as disciples. For chances to step into conflict to to occur Christianity isn't meant to be all smiles all the time. That's why Jesus gave us basic conflict resolution skills and steps that we're to implement when conflict occurs. Not running for the hills, not turning our back on one another or stonewalling each other, but walking through conflict resolution. That's part of what it is to be a Christian. For conflict to occur, it also means that reconciliation can occur and therefore we can show the world what a reconciliatory spirit looks like. And this is where the hard work of being formed in his image occurs. Church, I am with you if it is hard to make it to community group. I host one and it's hard. I've even been honest with people before. Because of my introversion, there are points where people start coming through the door because we about 30 of you show up to our house some nights and it's like, I just want to go in the bathroom and hide. 
because I know that the Lord is going to be conforming me into his image, and sometimes that's a little bit hard. But don't put that aside because it's hard. Embrace it because it's hard. These are meant to be times where people can bear their souls and weep together in difficulties. They are meant to be times where we come out of our shells to pray together and read together and sing together. They're meant to be times where we come together to recognize what an amazing gift we have been given to be welcomed into fellowship with the triune God and his people. And this is hard to do without proximity to each other. Many of you have asked, why do I have to go to the community group nearest to me? Well, the word together there, look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, if you read on down, verse 46 also has the word together translated in English. But these are two very different words. Verse 44 is an idiom. It's kind of like a saying, epitaato, which means to be in the same place. So verse 44 is saying all who believed were in the same place and had all things in common. It's a statement of proximity. Proximity breeds friendship, reliance, and community. If you have to drive 30 minutes to attend your community group, or you have to drive 30 minutes to drop your kiddo off because your other kiddo got sick and you have to take him to the emergency room and you need one of your community group members to take that kid, it's not going to happen. Fellowship will become a burden that leads to distance and isolation rather than rejoicing with one another. Proximity matters so we can be in the same place following the same mission. And so a spirit-filled church is a generous church and a church that values what it is to live life together, especially in the breaking of bread together in joyful feasting. Christ did it with his disciples. He's called us to do it corporately as a body. And I believe he rejoices when we do it in the informal ways when we have meals together in our homes. All the while, we are looking forward together to that feast of feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will rejoice together in in the last day. Well, lastly... Almost done here. Not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, not only did they devote themselves to loving fellowship and to joyful feasting together, but last and definitely not least, they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking bread of bread and the prayers. Mission, I want to ask you a question here. Would you say that we are a church devoted to learning the Lord's word? Yes or no? Hopefully you have a little bit more feeling than that. Are we devoted to learning the Lord's word? I would say so. Church, would you say that we are growing in our understanding of what it is to live generously in fellowship with one another? Absolutely. You guys are doing a bang-up job. It is so heartwarming to watch you care for one another and to see the care, the pastoral care that's happening in the midst of community groups. I think we are definitely getting there. Would you say that we know what it is to feast together? Yes. Amen, I would say that for sure. Uh, I usually on Wednesdays when it's community group, I don't eat most of the day so that I can fill up on food in the evening because you guys bring such good food, especially Sierra, my goodness. Where is she? That food she brings, unbelievable every time. But here's the question, church. Would you say that we're a church that's known for our devotion to prayer? I must admit that even in preparing for this teaching, this one brought the most conviction. In our early days as a church, we did not have the funds to keep going. There were Sundays and Wednesday evenings where I looked at the doors of the building hoping that someone would show up. I still do that, but not for the same reasons. I lived in constant anxiety that the next Sunday could be our last. 
And I will tell you, I have never had as good of a prayer life as that season of time because there was nothing else. The only other time I can think of where my prayer life was so full were the times I've been in Africa where you have no hospital and if a member of your team gets sick, you're on your knees because you have nothing else. Some of these anxieties from those early days are still there or manifest in different ways, but the longer we've gone as a church, the seeming necessity for prayer has faded. And part of this is simply that it's harder to pray together now that we are a larger church. Not not that the actual need has disappeared, but perhaps we have convinced ourselves that it has. Dear flock, we need Christ and his working in our lives and our church more now than ever. This church is under aggressive attack by the enemy of Christ. I find people having issues at work that they've never had before, sicknesses that no one's ever had before, people dealing with social interaction that just hurts. We need the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit more now than ever. We need the unity of the Holy Spirit within our body more now than ever. And for this, we all need to pray. Our application for today is pretty much immediate. We will get to sing together in unity to God and to one another in congregational singing. Remember when you're singing, you're not just singing to the Lord, you're singing to one another to build one another up. We'll also share together in the work of cleaning up after this service. We'll then feast together in joy and thanksgiving. But I want to challenge us with one more application for this week. I want Mission Fellowship to be a church marked by prayer. I want to challenge each of you, each of us, to examine our prayer life this week to see if we are even relying on God at all. Are we giving praise and thanks and asking for that which we need Him in to glorify Him? This week, within our community groups, I want to challenge us to devote ourselves to prayer, to give praise and thanks and petition of what we need. And if you are a person that does not usually pray, I want to challenge you to challenge yourself. We should have prayer sessions where we cannot stop giving praise to Jesus. If you're uncomfortable praying out loud, I would suggest bring a psalm to read out loud. Choose one during the week, practice it, And then read it out loud during the time of praise to give glory to God. If you're a person that needs to capture your thoughts and can't speak in the moment, then write out a prayer during the week and bring it to speak it out loud. Guys, I do it every week. My pastoral prayers are prayed over and written out beforehand. We need to be people that agree with one another's prayers in the statement of amen, agreeing audibly with yes, Lord, or an audible thanks. Let's be a people known for prayer. Don't get lost in this anti-biblical wrong understanding of the Spirit that the Spirit only works in spontaneity. Guys, that is false doctrine. It is true that the Spirit can work in spontaneity, but the Spirit also works in glories in preparation. And if you're a person that needs to prepare in that moment, do it. The Lord is pleased with that effort. Guys, if these four things are among us and characterize us, being devoted to the the word of God, being devoted to loving fellowship, being devoted to joyful feasting and being devoted to prayer, we can be sure that the spirit dwells amongst us and motivates us to step outside our church to minister to those around us and bring those that God is saving into our spirit-filled community. We have to realize that the spirit is a missionary spirit that drives a missionary church. Look at the end of Acts 2, 47 there. The last sentence, 
It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice with me that the Spirit is a missionary spirit. He desires to add to the number of the church daily. And recognize with me that it is the Lord who does that work. The Lord adds them. The Lord draws them by his grace. But there also is the work of the church to make sure it is a place to which their number can be added. That those who are being saved can be brought into a healthy church that is not full of worldliness and selfishness, but is willing to raise up disciples. Notice with me that before the gospel spreads to the surrounding regions, chapter 3 on for the rest of Acts, the Lord was establishing a church from which that gospel could originate. The Lord was the one doing the saving, but in saving, he was also adding them to the number of the members of the church. And so we need to be a church that prays for the Lord's power and partners with him to make every effort to be this church.